When we studied Daniel chapter 6, the story of Daniel and the lion's den, I mentioned that Daniel was the object of hatred, and I described hatred as being irrational, deadly, anti-God, and demonic. And I suggested some avenues of thought um, along those lines, that it is often irrational, that is, simply put, it doesn't always make sense, excuses or reasons may be given for it, but when you think about it, in the end, it doesn't make sense. It is often deadly. Cain killed Abel. Joseph's brothers wanted to kill him. Saul tried to kill David. Supremely, we see this in the death of Christ, the crucifixion of Jesus. John tells us in 1 John, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Then, Thirdly, human hatred is essentially directed against God. Deep down in all human hearts, one writer put it, all have the same resentment against the truth of God, the same love for is opposite to God. Even when we speak of murder, uh, you know, hates of crime or without uh, hate, it is ultimately an attack against God. One cannot kill God, but one can kill someone made in the image of God. Fourthly, human hatred is demonic. Uh, It doesn't come out of the goodness of God's creation. This is something that comes from the evil one. And in the end, it ends up being quite ridiculous and absurd. And yet, and this question came up afterwards, and I tried to deal with it, I said I would come back to it. And yet, elsewhere in the Bible, we find that hatred is acceptable, and even commended. In short, we seem to get mixed messages. Psalm 97.10 Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. In Romans chapter 12 Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And then the end of chapter 5 of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount uh, you have heard that it was said love your enemy uh, love your neighbor sorry this is from Leviticus 19 and hate your enemy but I tell you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be the sons and daughters of your father in heaven he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous if you love those who love you what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you only greet, if, or you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, on the one hand, we seem to be instructed to hate, and on the other, we are told to love, not hate. Plus, in the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, we are to be like our heavenly Father. What does the scripture say about God and hate? Psalm 5, 5. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. That is in God's presence. You, that is God, hate all who do wrong. God hates those who do wrong. Psalm eleven five. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. Proverbs 6.16 
There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. And then in Isaiah 61, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. Well, some of these make sense to us, if you wish, that God hates certain things like robbery, uh, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. Um, But what about God hating all who do wrong? The Lord willing, what I hope to do in the next few weeks is to examine the matter of hate or hatred from Scripture. What does the Scripture say? and to develop or construct a theology of hate. came across an article this past week on the New Yorker and found this statement, Hatred is depressing. It is, of course, depressing to be hated, but it is also depressing to hate. What does the scripture tell us about hate? Well, if we are to be like our Heavenly Father, then this whole discussion must begin with the question of God and hate. Does God hate? How does God hate? And is it wrong for God to hate? This last question might seem to be out of line. Who are we to question God? But I would suggest to you that the way that people view God and its implications, how it's worked out in our lives, is really, really important. Whether we acknowledge it or not, people don't view God the way that we might hope that they do. I think those who do believe in God, that is, they believe that God exists, they don't necessarily want to listen to him, but they believe that God exists, somehow see him as morally primitive. The God that is described in scripture is morally inferior to them. That is, people today think that they are in fact morally superior to God. This is something we looked at, I think, 20 years ago. Uh, after I attended a Labrie conference and Wade Bradshaw had spoken on this, I thought today what I would do is use this as sort of to lay the foundation and then the Lord willing will get into it in the weeks to come, the issue of hatred. But right now, um, how is it that we view God? If we're going to talk about God and hate, let's set hate aside for a moment and let's talk about how we view God. First of all, what I hope to do is to develop a theology of hate from scripture, not from what people say, not from what certain Christians claim. Um, As I said, many people would suspect that God is morally inferior, morally primitive. But in fact, I think what they're talking about is what they see Christians doing or living or saying. But let's talk about God being morally inferior. Some people would say that God is intolerant of difference, differences, for example, in sexual orientation. And some would say, I'm tolerant. I don't really care about such things. Therefore, I am more tolerant than God, and I am thus morally superior to him. Some would say that God is vindictive. Uh, eternal punishment? Uh, I, would, I wouldn't do that to my worst enemy. And yet God seems to do this... T- to billions and billions of people through human history, they will be cast into the lake of fire. Some argue that God seems egotistical and self-centered. He wants people to worship him 
It's all about him and his glory. Some would argue that God is afraid of the truth, that science is the quest for truth, but the Bible and God's people seem to be opposed to such a quest. And so they see this as really quite immoral, that there's a lack of openness to what might be found to contradict what we find in Scripture. When God says that he alone has the truth, this seems rather exclusive, and beyond the arrogance of it, it seems intolerant and as though he is afraid that something will be revealed. Because we live in this world, we breathe the same air physically and culturally, we may also deep down harbor such thoughts. Think of the atonement, Jesus dying for our sins. How primitive is that? Modern people don't go around killing animals as a sacrifice. They don't do human sacrifices. This, this, this is barbaric. It seems unjust and nonsensical. And there is even a fringe group who refer to the death of Jesus as child abuse, that God the Father kills God the Son. The bottom line is people want to know who does God think that he is? Who is he to limit my freedom? Who is he to determine what is right and wrong? Many people see this as a sign that God is in fact not moral but immoral and in many ways quite petty. Well, this comes into play and we look at this uh, some time ago with the idea of God's anger or God's wrath. Particularly when people speak of God's love. Um, but what they mean by God's love is God will let them do whatever it is that they want. That God would love, he loves them so much he would not try to limit their freedom. And so the idea of God getting angry if I do something wrong, yeah, that just doesn't seem right. Some would say that the love of God allows me to do what I want. There are some who call themselves Christians who argue that God has throughout time been learning how to deal with people. That the whole Adam and Eve, Eve thing sort of caught him off guard. And so in the Old Testament we see a God of, of anger and violence and then Jesus comes along and he's mellowed and God is a God of love. You know, in the Old Testament, he threw Adam and Eve out of the garden. He put a mark on Cain for killing his brother. He destroyed the earth with a flood. He scattered mankind at Babel, uh, the Tower of Babel. And then he gave Israel the command to destroy, to wipe out certain nations. But when we get to the New Testament, it seems that God has turned the corner. And now he is a God of love. He's learned what it means to love. Now, I want to be honest, this is a very simplistic presentation of process theology, but the bottom line is people see themselves as morally superior to God, that they know better than God, and who is God to tell them what to do. In today's world, there are three, at least three assumptions. The first is that people are searching for God. They want to know the truth about God. They're searching for him. Secondly, they are frustrated in their search for God. The search for God is possible, they would say, but the goal is past finding out, especially with certainty. And therefore, people come up to a conclusion in which they create a God of their own design. 
The third assumption is that God holds us guilty for not finding him, but he doesn't really help us to find him. And, and he could. So why does he? People are looking, they're frustrated because they can't find him, and God just doesn't seem to be helping in this process. If we'd be honest, there are times in our lives when we think this. When God seems so distant and so far, and we say, I'm looking for you, I want to engage you, I want to talk to you, and as the psalmist put it, the heavens are as brass. Nothing, it just all seems to bounce back. What we find in scripture is something quite different. The first is that God has no problems. Secondly, humanity has great problems. Now this is something I think people would quibble with because people would say, no, um, I, I might have psychological issues, but I don't have guilt. I don't really have guilt. I haven't done anything wrong. It's psychological issues. And I would say that today, for many people, the issue is meaninglessness. What, what is the meaning of my life? What purpose does it have? And thirdly, what we find in Scripture is that God has generously, genuinely acted to resolve this alienation. God, in fact, has reached out to humanity. It is humanity that runs away from him. I believe it was C.S. Lewis who said that people look for God the way that a mouse looks for a cat. You want to stay as far away from it as possible. God has revealed his truth in scripture. So we must hold to scripture. So what what does the scripture say about God's wrath? Let's look at the issue of God's anger and his wrath. The scriptures, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, speak of God's anger. But as I said, it sounds somewhat primitive and even barbaric. Why do we struggle with this? Why is this such a problem for us? Well, first of all, Because when we think of anger, we think of ourselves. The bad example of human anger. Human anger is often badly motivated, badly acted out. People sort of act irrationally because they're angry. Um, So when you say God is angry, the first thought that comes to mind is God is acting the way that I do when I get angry. And boy, that... I I don't like that picture. Uh, I I don't like the idea that God gets angry. Listen to the language we use of anger. Blind rage. Out of control. Beside oneself. Or somebody lost it. Or they blew up. It is interesting in scripture that human anger is not always seen as wrong. There are, in fact, restrictions and limitations. Um, We are told, in your anger, do not sin. That's from Ephesians 4.26. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And then in James 1.9, sort of the outline for his book, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. There's nothing wrong with being angry. But the reality is, oftentimes when we get angry, we lose it, we lose control, we blow up, and our anger is sinful. 
But does this apply to God as well? Does he abide by the same constraints or does he violate his own rules? I would argue that God does not violate these rules. He is, in fact, slow to anger. And yet there are passages that speak of him being angered quickly. Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Like that. This may seem to contradict other passages, um, but there is no contradiction. We may speak of him as being quick to anger in unjust situations, but at the same time we need to acknowledge we don't fully understand God. The second reason I think that we are really uncomfortable with talking about the wrath of God is because of the preaching of previous generations of Christians who are traditionally known as hellfire and brimstone preachers. People now want to hear about the love of God. and On some level I would agree, we are not always to talk about the wrath of God. That's not to be our steady diet. But we can't ignore it either. And for those who are embarrassed by hellfire and brimstone preachers, I, I, would, I would admonish you we should be thankful for them because they pointed out the reality of God's anger against our sin. Our task as God's people is to represent him as he is, as he's revealed himself, and not to choose the picture of God that we want. We're not to ask Will people like the message that I have to bring to them? Rather, we should ask, is my message true and is it clear? If it's not clear and if it's not true, then we have to change the message. Not because people don't like it, but because it isn't right. I think we make the mistake of misrepresenting God. And in this series on looking at a theology of hate, Boy, the more I read on it, well, first of all, I have to tell you, at a certain point, I feel like, oh, Damon, you've done it again. You've picked a topic and you've gotten started and you're going to be in over your head almost immediately. Um, The problem is that so many Christians speak on God's behalf apart from Scripture or they twist Scripture. The picture of God that is created is, in fact, quite ugly. We must present him as we find him in Scripture. Um, let me suggest some things for you to think about with regard to God's anger and God's wrath the first is that wrath is not an attribute of God God is not angry by nature he's not eagerly looking for a way to vent his anger as Wade Bradshaw put it God is not in a bad mood He's not influenced by his hormones. He doesn't have sleepless nights. He is not hungry. He didn't have a bad childhood. These are things that people use as excuses for their anger and oftentimes for their unrighteous anger. But these things are not true of God. God is not like that. Wrath is not an attribute. It is not a characteristic of God like his holiness or his love. The scriptures tell us God is love. We are never told God is anger. God is wrath. No. 
God is love and God is holy. Wrath is the action that God takes to evil and wickedness. We can say, I think, with with confidence, if there were no evil, God would never be angry. It isn't a part of his character. It is, in fact, a reflection of his love. We'll talk about that in a minute. Ask yourself, if God did not react to evil in his world, would he be morally perfect or even morally acceptable? If God said, yeah, yeah, there's evil, oh, yeah, there's a lot of evil in the world, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Is this a God that we would find morally acceptable or morally perfect? Do we want God to react to evil or not? Do we want him to take evil seriously? How seriously do we want him to take it? Interestingly enough, uh, we do want him to take it seriously when other people do things, but not necessarily uh, when we do. Remember years ago here in the state of California, uh, a certain uh, person of the legislature kept getting uh, stopped for speeding tickets. And so he passed a law uh, outlawing radar uh, in certain places. I think that's the way we are oftentimes about evil. Yeah, God should get those people, but yeah, the things I do, he, he shouldn't get too worked up about. So when it comes to certain things, I think we're willing to turn a blind eye. There's certain things that, yeah, we want him to respond to, but others, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. But the reality is, would we worship? Would we think him worthy if, in fact, he turned a blind eye to sin? You may remember in the series on evil, there was a three-step progression. First of all, most people live or think as though evil does not exist. Secondly, they are shocked when evil slaps them in the face. Something happens as a result of evil. And then thirdly, they respond in an immature way, almost a hysterical way. So, for example, when it comes to things like sexual immorality, um, if someone commits adultery, rather they didn't do that, but not a big thing. But if someone commits uh, pedophilia, if someone's a pedophile, off with their head. The reality is, in God's word, they're both wrong. They're both sin. Most theologians, when they talk about God's wrath, they do so in connection with his holiness. His holiness is who he is in his essence. This is who God is. God is holy in a sinless world. God is holy in a sinful world. It doesn't matter. God is, by nature, holy. That is, he is set apart. He is cut off and separate from evil. It is because of his holiness that God will be angry with anything that does not conform to that holiness. Therefore, God gets angry. The second thing is God's wrath is against anything that does not conform to his character. Was this just conceit? Well, I think maybe in someone else it would be. But let's ask ourselves, what determines if something is morally good or morally wrong? What is the basis of ethics? How do we know if something's right or wrong? There are three possibilities. The first two are wrong. 
heads up. The third one is the biblical view. The first is that good and evil exist. There's an eternal universal standard somewhere out there that says this is what is right and this is what is wrong. By the way, in this point of view, this standard is above God. God must conform to this standard. There's this universal standard that applies to everyone and that includes God himself. Um, most of us think this way, whether we acknowledge it or not. If we think it through, I think in, in some ways, and that's why we point the finger to God and say, that's not fair. What you did wasn't right. Because there's a standard and God failed to live up to the standard. The second possibility is that good and evil are only names that God decides to give to things. So he may in fact change his mind. That in one generation this is good, and in another generation God will say, yeah, let's call this evil now. So good and evil are whatever God decides that they are. In many ways it's just arbitrary. But the third possibility is the biblical view is that it is God's character that determines what is good and what is evil. Anything that does not conform to his character, his nature, anything that opposes his nature is evil. And his character does not change. In the hymn that we sang earlier, Great is thy faithfulness, God doesn't change. He does not change. We are sinful because we do not conform to the image of the Creator. We sin when we try to be our own gods. In Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. In the King James, it has against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. Ungodliness, not like God. Unrighteousness, not like a holy God. It's really ironic that as human beings, we want to be seen as significant. We want to have meaning. We don't want our lives to be meaningless. But we want to get rid of the thing that in fact gives us meaning. That's God's judgment. God is the standard of what is right and what is wrong. And the fact that God sees all that we are doing and that he judges all that we are doing ultimately points to the fact that we're significant. Because otherwise, why doesn't God just let us go our merry way and do whatever we want? The fact that he holds us accountable means that we have meaning. You could even argue that the existence of God doesn't give human beings meaning. It's the fact that he takes us seriously that gives us meaning. He notices us. He knows what we are doing. He knows the character of our actions. And he judges them. We are significant. We are made in the image of God. But we are significant because of God's judgment of us. People want their choices to mean something. In an election season, that one vote, that person wants to have a sense that my vote counts. And yet the reality is, our significance comes from God's judgment. God's attitude toward me is affected by the fact that whether or not I do what he says, whether or not I choose to be like him in my actions and in my character. God's personal reaction to my evil is anger. And so Paul tells the Ephesians, we are by nature children of wrath. We are born into this world as children of wrath. 
God's reaction to my every act and every choice is determined by his character, his unchanging character. So I don't need to think, oh, today this is wrong and in a hundred years it will be okay. No, that's the way we are as human beings, but God does not change. Is there a conflict between God's anger and God's love? We've talked about God's anger and his holiness, and so that we've sort of reconciled, but what about his love? Is God schizophrenic? Does he love us one moment and then angry at us the next? God's love is not a reaction to our behavior. It's not like his anger. God is love. That is his attribute. And because he is holy, he cares about what we do. Because he is holy, he judges our actions. But because of his love, he is merciful. He doesn't cease to be loved when he reacts in anger. He doesn't cease to be holy when he offers mercy. Both are the result of judgment. He sees my actions and is like, Damon, that's wrong. That is sin. That's his holiness judging me. But in his love, he can be merciful to me. When we stand before God, how will we approach God? What will we say when we get to heaven? Well, some have suggested that we will get into heaven based on merit, on the good things that we have done, weighing the good and the bad, and then if the good is heavier than the bad, then then we get in. No. Our worth, our significance comes from God's judgment. God who made us, God who loves us, but God who is holy will judge us. The Bible points to his love. We are to rely on his love and his love alone, not on our merit. We are born of water and the spirit. We have been cleansed from our sins by the death of Christ. And we have been received, we have been adopted by God into his family. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the one who would turn aside his wrath, taking away our sins. We find in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then in verse number 17, I think verse 16, most people know. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God's love is the basis for him sending his son into the world. Jesus didn't come here to condemn the world. The world was already under condemnation because of our sins, because we did not follow God's character. It is the love of God that offers freely the gift of forgiveness. It's the wrath of God that tells us we have significance. It's a love of God that shows that God loves us and we have worth and he is willing to forgive us. Love is given by God to those who are made in his image, but wrath is also shown to those who make the wrong choices and go their own way.
as we will in the next weeks, the Lord willing, look at the matter of hate as found in Scripture, we must set as our foundation the character of God. If we have a wrong view of God, then we are really, we're off at the beginning. We need to be set straight on who God is. And I, I've tried to do it today by looking at God's one attribute that I think people struggle with, God's wrath. To show that in fact God is perfect. God is a God of holiness and of love. But living when and where we do, God's character is suspect to many. And I, I think I need to take that back. I don't think it's just living when and where we do. I think it's, it's been this way since the Garden of Eden. When the serpent tempted Eve and she came to question God's honesty and God's integrity. Yeah, I, I don't think God told me the truth about this tree and about this fruit. And ever since then, we have all wanted to be like God or gods. I think our lives show that every single day. Let me mention one more thing about God's wrath. We need to understand that God's postponing of his wrath or his anger shows that he is slow to anger, that he is long-suffering. But many have taken this as a sign that God doesn't really care what you do. No, he does. God cares about you. You have meaning. You have significance. He cares what you do. God's not saying what you're doing is fine. You continue in your sin. Or that he doesn't care. He, he deeply does care. And if God did not care, by the way, there would be no final judgment. Just, that's it. But in fact, everyone must be asked, or will be asked to give account of what they have done. God cares. God is angry at our sinning. And he calls us to stop sinning and to repent. Because he loves us. Earlier, as I mentioned, we sang the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, which is actually based on a passage from Lamentations chapter 3. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then from Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. I think people have trivialized the grace of God. It is cheap because they have forgotten the wrath of God. And they don't like the wrath of God because they don't like anger in themselves. But God's anger is perfect. It is because he cares about us. 
but he's also a God of love and in great mercy and grace he has saved us. By his grace in the weeks to come may we come to have a clearer picture of what the scripture says about hate. I must tell you the temptation floated by me. Let's not talk about hate at all. Let's, let's, let's do something else because it's really difficult to deal with. That's not the answer. We need to see what scripture says so that as God's people we will do right. We will do what is right according to scripture. Let's pray together. Our Father, even as we pray to you, oftentimes we have constructed an image of you as we want you to be. And that image does not include anger or wrath or hatred. Sometimes we see you as a giant vending machine in the sky that we put in our prayers and you give us what we want. Or sometimes like a grandparent showing great affection and spoiling us rotten. You have in fact revealed yourself in creation but in scripture and supremely in your son the Lord Jesus. This is who you are. I pray for wisdom in the weeks to come as we look at the matter of hatred. We live in a time of great hatred, it seems. Some would blame politics. I just think culturally we are in a place of great hatred. And as your people who live here, this is where you've put us, may we come to have a good understanding, a right understanding of what it means to be your people and what place hate is to have in our life, if it is to have any place at all. I thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense of your presence through the rest of the week. This is the first day of a new week. May our hearts be filled with gratitude because of your great love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.